Hey, Whiskey Ringers, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Before we jump into the interview with Eric Wolf of Stolen Wolf Distillery, just a few quick notes. If you haven't joined the Patreon community yet, please consider doing so. I'm working on some extra content and experiences, including an upcoming barrel pick with Perry, Eric, and This Is My Bourbon Podcast. And Patreon members are going to have first access to our allocation. You can support for as little as a dollar a month. There are also tiers for $5 and $25 if you really want to support big time. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you join and you get that welcome email, reply to it. Email me. Let me know what you want to see as a Patreon member and what kind of experiences and things you want to have as a member and supporter of the show. Secondly, the You Don't Know Jack event is rapidly approaching. On May 19th, I'm going to be hosting a vertical tasting of all the Jack Daniels Tennessee whiskeys from the old number seven uh, black label that we all know to the newer 10 year old edition, the Coy Hill High Proof a single barrel barrel proof that I help pick and everything in between. It's a great event. We've got seven samples involved. Click the link in the show notes to get your tickets and samples before May 12th to make sure you get them in time. If you buy after that, I can't guarantee you're getting them in time. You're still absolutely welcome to join the event. Just can't guarantee you're going to get the samples on time. Finally, please do like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. It really helps the podcast move up in the rankings and get a little more notoriety. With that, thanks for listening. Here's Eric Wolf of Stolen Wolf Distillery. Hey, Whiskey Ringers, welcome to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, I'm going to Pennsylvania. We're talking to Eric Wolf from Stolen Wolf Distillery. Eric, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having, uh, having us on. It was a pleasure to talk whiskey. Absolutely. So, uh, for you know, this is going to come out on audio first, but you can see behind Eric, I'll see if I can get a screenshot. Uh, he's, right in front of a gigantic pot still or what seems like a gigantic pot still, you know, uh, connect to, well, actually, I guess it's a hybrid, right? Connected to a column still. It is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so our system was, uh, was designed by, uh, by our mentor and, and partner Dick Stoll. So it's uh, very similar to what he ran when he was at Victor's in Pennsylvania. So it's a, uh, a column stripping still, and then a, uh, a pot still, um, that pot still um we actually had three plates on there um, so yeah we uh a lot of fun to to uh to run awesome awesome so we'll definitely get into you know the specs on the stills and the uh of course we'll talk about dick Stoll. um but let's start with the the basic you know you're you're in lancaster county pennsylvania so what's your story as to how you how you got there and how this delivery started Sure. So yeah, I was uh, I was born and raised here in uh, in Lancaster County. Um, when I uh, when I was growing up here in eighties uh, and nineties, it was uh, I don't know. I, I never really appreciated how amazing it was. Uh, I, I mean, I enjoyed it. I, I loved growing up here. But when I moved away for uh, for college, I thought that there wouldn't be a whole lot of the family to draw me back. But uh, when I was had the chance to uh, graduate live in New York City, I was uh, working in restaurants and the uh, slow food movement was uh, was really gaining a lot of traction there. And folks started discussing uh, a lot of food traditions and a lot of uh, the specific places that, that they were tied to. And once I started to research our own history here in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, I realized that despite growing up here, I didn't know that, that it was considered the birthplace of the American whiskey industry uh, that's by the National Register of Historic Places. And basically that was the the folks at uh, what ultimately would become the Bomberger site when it, when it was the Shanks back in the 1750s. 
they were the first people to, if you asked them what they did for a living, they would have said they were distillers. And up to that point, there were a lot of seasonal distillers, but in our area, um, they were the first to, to be recognized as folks that did that as an industry and did it year round. Uh, not necessarily a coincidence in that this area was the frontier at one time. It was as far west as you could, could basically go. Um, also, uh, Conestoga Wagon uh, popularized out west, but also you had to buy it here. You couldn't buy it along. There were no dealerships along the way. Also, with the Kentucky Long Rifle, popularized in Kentucky, but manufactured here in, in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania for use further out in the frontier. So in our area, there were so many farms that were so productive. Lancaster County is still the most productive non-irrigated farmland in all of North America. So you have Florida, you have California, they produce more, but that's with irrigation. So here in Lancaster County per acre produces more per, per acre than anywhere else in the country. So even at that time, they had such an abundance of, of crops, particularly rye, the only way to preserve it long term and to make it more portable for out in the frontier was to distill it. So again, over 275 years of, of local history of, of making rye whiskey, the crazy thing is it almost went away. So for us, um, once we started to research all that history and, and learn about how rich it was, um, we started to, to learn more about the people that had, had preserved that tradition and, and the last person in that chain of, of uh, sort of custody of that, uh, that information was a gentleman by the name of Dick Stoll. And uh, we were introduced to Dick Stoll by a mutual friend, Ethan Smith, who had, had done a bunch of research and was able to, uh, to meet Dick prior. And as much of an analog guy as Dick was, he gave us his wife's email. Dick didn't have an email, but his <laughs> wife does. So we were able to reach out to them and, and arrange a meeting and, um, the rest, uh, I, I guess, is uh, is sort of history in the making. I mean, it, it's a really fantastic story, and uh, so the Shanks officially started the what you know we would later be Bombergers, as you said, and then Michters at one point up until '89, was it? I guess. Um, so since 1753, doesn't they? You know, founded this distillery there, and um, I know there's there's a bit of controversy going on right now in terms of. Um, I think Michter's current current iteration of Michter's um, put out a claim being the oldest distillery in America, and you know because it's a separate facility, it's the whole thing. So we'll leave that for for a later podcast when there's more information available. But um, I was you know I was fascinated with the connection uh, between Lancaster as a county and the migration of people through there. So um, I know when you were talking to uh, for example, Alan Bishop, when you were on Distillers Talk, yeah. uh, you were talking about how this is a, an area where even today there's a very large concentration of uh, German, Irish populations, and these are populations that would have brought distillation techniques with them from, you know, quote unquote, the old world. And and that's that's so true. And and as folks were coming through here, uh, again, it was a frontier one time, and the way that. Uh, that inheritance worked, at least in our area, was if you were the oldest son, you were able to inherit the farm. If you weren't, then you had to basically go west or south because there really wasn't a whole lot else for you. So in our area, a lot of the farms tended to be 
about 85 acres or so, mostly because you had to clear the land and be able to work it with, with your family, a lot of times without the aid of, of any horses or, or a mule. So um, in our family, we actually have a farm that dates back to the uh, 1740s. Um, it was deeded not by William Penn directly, but his brother, Michael Penn. And that's still farmed by cousins of ours. Um, and, and we're fortunate enough to get some of our grain from there. Um, we're actually getting um, some of our Keystone Rose and Rye uh, from their farm. So for us, uh, super exciting to be able to tie into that history. But that, that said, in this area, um, you had folks that had emigrated here from, from Germany. Uh, a lot of the folks were from the Palatinate region, Germany. So the wacky thing is Germany wasn't founded I could be off on my dates here, double check me, but 1850s, 1860s, I believe. So these folks were German, but not, they wouldn't necessarily have thought of themselves as Germans when they came over. Um, they, they did refer to themselves as, uh, I guess, Deutsch, which was misinterpreted and, and as Dutch. So they became known as, as Pennsylvania Dutch, even though they were from Palatinate region. The interesting thing about the Palatinate region, if you look on Google Maps even today, about a day's walk from uh, that region of Germany, southern Germany, to um, Switzerland and France as well. So definitely a lot of exchange of ideas back and forth there, but they were Lutheran. My, my family was Lutheran. They weren't Catholic. So a few of them got burned at the stake, decided that that was not necessarily a tenable position. Um, also, the area they were in, in that southern Germany area uh, seemed to turn over every 20 to 40 years, sometimes a shorter period where basically there'd be a war. If you were loyal to the person who won, great, you can keep your land. If you weren't, then it was redistributed. So it was very difficult to, to actually maintain a farm. And also they were tenant farmers. They weren't necessarily owning the land. They were working for somebody else and had to turn over a portion of their crops. So when they got here and found this really abundant, very fertile soil, they had more crops than they ever had when they were over in Europe and didn't really know what to do with them or how to preserve them. The other thing that, that's pretty interesting is I know folks um, talk about the birth of rye whiskey and it coming from Europe, which again, it makes perfect sense. When, when they got here, they built houses that looked very similar to the houses they built when they were living in Europe, they, uh, you know, their their towns looked sort of similar. It's you you sort of do what you know. They weren't going to necessarily reinvent the wheel. So for them, distilling rye was what they knew. Um, there probably wasn't a whole lot of corn grown in Germany at that time. So when they came over, rye was was what they knew, and it was what um, seemingly they they preferred to drink as well. In our town. Um, the Moravians, um, which was a, another group of Germans, uh, founded founded the town, and it was it was basically a religious commune. It was a place where they could free, uh, flee religious persecution, set up their own own town in accordance with their beliefs, and even they, in the mid 1700s, the single sisters, basically the women who were late uh, late teens, early 20s. Um, the ones who, who had not been married yet uh, would distill rye as a way to, to make currency to trade for or to, to purchase things they couldn't otherwise trade for, like buttons, um, some of the other uh, lace, other things that, that they could make the yarn and they could make some of the other textiles, some of the other things they couldn't trade for, they actually would purchase with that. And in our area, 
um, at that time, there was some colonial money, but very little. And the colonial dollars were more valuable in state than out. But also once you left Pennsylvania, the paper money was almost useless, whereas the whiskey still had some value, both as food and medicine. So um, the bricks that are right behind me here are from uh, what was known as the Old Rome Distillery. That started in the later part of the 1700s. But again, um, another local distillery making rye whiskey in the area. And that actually holds our thumper up, the, the brick platform. So also over in our tasting room, more of that same brick from that distillery holds up our, our bar. So for us, we, we truly, um, we, we have the past truly supporting the present, um, just as a, a physical reminder of uh, all the great folks that, that came before us and the traditions that, that we hope to preserve uh, for the future. I mean, it's, it's really fascinating. I, I love the, the history of whiskey and learning more about it and getting to really dig into where we came from as whiskey drinkers and uh, whether it's being a producer or a distiller now or just someone who enjoys it. Uh, I just find it fascinating. So, and I wanted to dig a little deeper before we, of course, get on to what you're doing now into the, I guess, the evolution between the population that was there. So at the time you're talking about, you know, colonial uh, times to, let's say, you know, in the time just before prohibition. Because uh, again, on with Alan Bishop, you've mentioned that Lancaster County, as I'm sure many counties did, really turned against distilling around prohibition. And so there are two aspects of that I wanted to kind of tease out. The first one being, you know, what caused that turn, but also just before that, uh, if you can speak to what's maybe a wrong stereotype, but I think of the Pennsylvania Dutch and these populations here as, as more religious, not necessarily drinkers, maybe distillers, but not drinkers. Um, and so if you could just kind of either correct or dispel those stereotypes. When, and with so much of it, it's, it's so interesting with history. You speak to, to different folks and there's a lot of different opinions as to why different things happen. So um, with, with all of these, these are sort of our conclusions with them. We don't want anyone to get, get offended that, that we don't believe it's the only conclusion that one could draw, but, but sort of the way we see it having happened was basically in, in the 1800s or through the 17 to 1800s, folks needed alcohol, um, mostly because water was unsafe to drink. And even in our beautiful, pristine town that these folks uh, crossed the ocean to come to, when they were here for about 10 years, there was a tannery that was set up. And anything downstream from the tannery, the water was not safe to drink. And in general, the uh, idea of, of bacteria and water was they knew water was not safe to drink. They didn't necessarily know how to make it safe to drink other than having distilled something in it and, and creating a certain alcohol content. Pasteurization, I believe, wasn't developed till the mid 1800s. So yeah. up until that point, the idea of, of being able to boil water to make it safe to drink wasn't something that was that was widely known. So by having alcohol in the water, it enabled it to be to be safe to consume. As pasteurization became known and as folks could sort of figure out other things to drink that that were safe, then alcohol suddenly became a uh, not a luxury, but it, it the necessity wasn't wasn't uh, quite as dire. And also uh, prior to 
the the spread of of things like opium and which was also incredibly dangerous there weren't a whole lot of painkillers so you had these farmers who were in the middle of nowhere who had to have teeth pulled bones set all by country doctors if not someone in the family so everyone had a at least some ailment and they were working incredibly hard trying to clear these fields and, and also bring in the crops as well so to do that the alcohol was something that not only was a little bit of food it had some calories it was medicine and it also was was a little bit of pain relief as well so as as time went on and and they found other methods of pain relief and figured out other things that that could be uh, consumed alcohol sort of started to uh, again, become less of a necessity and, and more of a more of a luxury. That sort of dovetailed with uh, the Industrial Revolution in this country, where you started to have people moving from farms into cities. And once you had that, you had a lot of folks that had grown up on farms and knew sort of country life, but once they moved to the cities in hope of work, didn't always find it. So you had a lot of unemployment also happening as these cities were growing and as the industrial revolution was happening. And a lot of, um, a, a lot of the groups um, led by, um, oh, it's the lady from the Temperance League. Uh, the, the woman- oh, um, I'm trying to think of it. It's F, I, you know, I'm thinking few spirits, F-E-W. Um, yeah, I can picture her face, but uh, was it, it was Carrie, Carrie Nation, I believe. The, oh, Carrie Nation was one, yeah. Um, or, or one of the ones that, that started. And, and basically the idea that, that was sold to folks was that you had husbands mistreating their wives. You had husbands who weren't working and, and neglecting their children. And ultimately it was a family values type of, type of play that was made. And they said that unfortunately alcohol is too cheap to make and too easy to consume. And the only way that we can cure this ill is by just completely eradicating it. And it's the kind of thing that even Abraham Lincoln, when he was running for president, had to make some concessions to prohibitionists in the, the 1860s. So it had been going on for quite a while before it was actually passed. In our area, you had uh, very religious folks who uh, not only had they, they come to this area to escape religious persecution, but we also um, have a lot of sort of Amish and Mennonite and, and older, um, is it some some folks who, who have very old world values, very traditional values, began to see alcohol as as a, a scourge, basically. Um, around that time, there was the ability um, and and the demand to grow tobacco, and tobacco in this area grows incredibly well and and was very very uh, prized. Uh, I believe it was the wrapper of the cigar that was that was grown in the area. So we had a lot of cigar processing facilities, um, a lot of cigar box manufacturers. And basically the, the belief was that we can grow this amazing cash crop that doesn't need all of the dangerous sort of distillation. We can involve the whole family in, in making it. And there's also no religious qualms about producing it either. So it's interesting the way things sort of go full circle. We also had very large hemp mills in the area. And very, there's a town very close to here called Hempfield. Uh, James Buchanan, uh, president from Lancaster, his, his plantation was known as Hempfield. So it, it's interesting the way these things sort of go in, in cycles. And, and as we talk to folks now um, and discuss with them that every so often we'll meet someone who says that they, they had a grandfather, great grandfather that used to make moonshine. And 
sort of a badge of honor when they tell us and, and they're very into it. And it's always, always very cool to hear the stories, but in the same way that um, I'm sure, you know, 80 years from now, someone will say that their grandfather had plants growing in their, in their, you know, closet and sort of the, the same way that, that these sort of uh, prohibitions come and go and, and the way society seems to sort of single out um, things for, for whatever reason, but, but there were a lot of um, different uh, variables sort of coming together to create the, uh, to create the perfect storm. And also in this area with, with all the Germans, um, we did have uh, a lot of, a lot of people who continued to make alcohol during prohibition, but a lot of brewers in this area as well, um, which was really interesting, mostly because, because of all the Germans, uh, I believe one statistic um, in, in an article that was written cited there were over 200 distilleries in Lancaster County alone in the 1800s. Likely a lot of them were, were not necessarily very large or producing large quantities, but definitely, uh, definitely a few that were. The 200, just to make sure, 200 distilleries, 200 breweries? Uh, 200 distilleries. Sorry. Distilleries. For okay. Worth there. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, either way, that's still a tremendous number for, for a single county. And um, in the time periods that you're talking about as well, I'll have to look up this statistic. I'll see if I can insert it somewhere. But um, like the high point of of drinking, of alcohol consumption in this country was like 1860s, 70s, 80s, 90s. I mean, it was something like six to seven times as much per person as it is today. And, you know, we think we have an alcohol problem today. We we might, but yeah, it, it's not the same. But as you said, they're drinking it, not just to drink it, but because it was safer than water, because it was an analgesic, and um, so that's those kinds of statistics fascinate me too. Because it's all it's all contextual. Like six to seven times as much alcohol is still a lot, but oh, it's, it's so fascinating. And and when you tell people that children used to drink alcohol in the 1700s, it sounds so terrible. But again, it it was the safest thing to to do. It was uh, mm -hmm. again the only thing that they knew wasn't going to kill you. So, right. you know, and, amazing. I mean. And when you say that too, right, you, I don't know if you know this offhand, but um, it didn't necessarily mean that the kids or the adults were drinking, you know, like 80 proof alcohol oh, not, or something. Not at all. Most of yeah. it, um, in, in terms, so they had cider um, that they would they would make as well that, that was a lower proof. And then they would also um, have lower proof alcohol to drink. I don't think, um, the, the interesting thing is with as dangerous as farm life was back then, I think there were probably people drinking to dull pain, drinking to, to quench thirst. But if, if they were drinking to intoxication with, with the way, you know, trying to handle a plow or, or dealing with a team of horses as time went on, or that was, that was some pretty dangerous stuff. So I, I don't know how many folks, um, again, I, I think it was mostly just to, uh, again, quench thirst, uh, take a little bit of the pain away and, maybe in the evenings, um, knock yourself out to be able to get some sleep. Right. Makes sense. Uh, so as we're going forward in time, so we're now about the time of, you know, just before prohibition, getting to prohibition. Um, at this point, you know, rye is still the predominant crop, distilled crop in probably Pennsylvania, Northeast, most of the Americas, maybe bourbon's starting to rise or what is today considered bourbon is starting to rise. But Pennsylvania specifically is very associated with rye. 
perhaps more than any other state, I would say. Um, you know, our, I know the the newer varietals you're using are, are heirloom varietals like uh, the Rosen rye, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But was that the type of rye that people were using back then, or was it kind of a mix? I, it's so interesting. I think it was probably uh, a mix back then. And and what tends to happen with some of the heirloom grains or or other uh, open pollinated grains is that there people will plant. Uh, farmers were very smart back then. They were definitely uh, learning as as they went in the new world, and each each season they harvested. Uh, I think there was probably some hybridization that was happening in that farmers would walk the fields and see the the plumpest heads of rye and the ones that that sort of stood most upright but weren't too tall. And uh, as 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 they went through, I think they probably unintentionally with with not that it was unintentional, but they they wouldn't have thought of it as hybridizing. They were just trying to get the best yield out of their field that they could have. So what they would have done is again walk that field, hold some of the best heads for seed, and then each year as those cross again, they're kind of getting their own unique. And again, it's not a word they would have ever used, but terroir in that field, um, which is which is pretty exciting. Um, so I think there were a lot of folks where there were regional varieties, but I think each variety from farm to farm would have had probably its own unique sort of micro microclimate and, and as a result, um, sort of unique hybrid uh, growing on each one of those farms. Um, so I, I think for a lot of those folks, it was more, we think of it now as um, as growing things that are the most flavorful and, and they did as well, but they were also just trying to make sure that they could actually get it in and, and that it wasn't going to fall over or rot in the field. So I think for a lot of what they were doing, it was sort of trial and error to sort of get get the strongest crops they could. And then the fact that the yields were going up, I think they they definitely were, were smart enough to realize all of those things. But for them, um, it was definitely a different time in that now we would go through and, and harvest out a whole field with a combine and you can do a few hundred acres and, and it's no big deal. At that time, trying to clear your 85 acres of rye would have been really challenging. I mean, I don't know if you've ever held a, uh, a scythe and, and swung it around a little bit. I only have just to see what those guys went through. It sounds sort of creepy when you talk about it, but it, it, it really, uh, you know, sort of, uh, again, it, for, for those people that don't know what we're talking about, the, the thing that the Grim Reaper holds is, is uh, to, to harvest. So that, that scythe and swinging that back and forth to try and cut down all that rye, then go through, thresh the grain, then go through and that's, that's a lot of work. And as that work was happening, that's multiple days out in the field. And they would also sheaf their grain while it was out in the field as well. So basically take it and make almost like a, like a pyramid out of it so that the heads were, were sitting up and then the stalks were on the ground. So it's interesting. Some of the older grain ledgers that we've, we've uh, been able to, to own uh, from the Bomberger distillery show that, that they were using a lot less malt than we may think they would have needed back then. Some of that is, is likely due to the fact that some of the enzymes were actually converting in the field. So you can't be a little bit pregnant, but with malt, you can be a little bit headed towards, towards malting. 
before actually sending out the rootlets. So it's uh, it, it's pretty fascinating. And and unfortunately, we don't get to taste a lot of whiskey from back then. But uh, as much as so many of us, myself included, romanticize the period and, and find it so fascinating, it, it's hard to know if the whiskey back then was was good. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was so much um, lead in in solder and just different um, different materials. Certainly, uh, prior to the Pure Food and Drug Act, who the heck knows what you're going to get in there? Mm-hmm. Uh, but but such an interesting uh, time period. And for us in this area, uh, Todd Leopold out out uh, in Colorado has recreated the three chambers still. But during that period, you definitely had a lot of three chambers still action here in Pennsylvania. Um, making those really heavy-bodied rise that were probably a, a good a good portion of, of what the reputation was based on. Also in Pennsylvania, um, that that was the time that Monongahela rye was was really um, spreading and become famous. And and as we always tell people, um, Pennsylvania rye is because it's sort of being reintroduced to to everyone across the country. A lot of folks tend to think of it as a monolith. That Pennsylvania rye is just just one style. And as we know, even using Kentucky bourbon as an example, you have high rye bourbon, you have weeders, you have much different styles of, of bourbons. Same thing with rye. So when, when folks try our rye and hopefully like it, we always remind them that it's just representative of one style. And it's actually representative of more of an Eastern Pennsylvania style. In our area, again, we have a lot of corn in this area. Again, most most productive non-irrigated farmland in all of, all of America. So for us, um, the corn was was part of the recipe that Dick was taught by his mentor Charlie Beam, member of the Beam family. Um, Beams actually started off in Pennsylvania. When you go down to visit their uh, their fantastic distillery, they have that giant wall of genealogy. Very top one is Jacob Bohm, B O E H M, Pennsylvania. Um, nobody got off the boat in Kentucky geographically very difficult to do so um for for us um adhering to to those recipes and processes that dick learned um our mash bill is is 60 30 10 so 60 percent rye 30 percent corn and 10 percent malt and dick's philosophy on that was that basically um it was the recipe he he was taught and, and the one that he distilled but but the reason that he felt the corn was so important was that when you make a chocolate cake and, and you want to up the sort of cocoa notes in there, you add a little bit of coffee and the coffee sort of enhances those notes of the cocoa and sort of coaxes it out. That's sort of the idea with, with the corn in our rye is not only is there history to it in our area, but also just the flavor profile is somewhat unique in that it does have a little bit of, uh, of caramel uh, notes in there. And it definitely, um, changes sort of the uh the way the rye spice sort of hits hopefully in in a good way so it's interesting uh in in the, the way it all comes together so and, uh last thing on the history before we get to the more contemporary aspects of it is is just talking about the i guess the pre would this be the pre malting enzymatic activity is that something you see in today's crops well, uh, for us, we have not seen that. Um, we so with our rye, um, the the heritage rye that we work with, the Keystone Rosen rye, um, we're we're very fortunate to come in after many folks did a lot of hard work to bring it back in the beginning. Um, 
most notably Laura Fields, um, who uh, worked with the Delaware Valley, her Delaware Valley Fields Foundation and SeedSpark campaign, um, who, who took it from basically five ounces of seed to now many, many acres that, that are planted across the state. Um, we've noticed that it definitely has its own unique characteristics, but we have not seen it uh, necessarily have more of that, uh, I, I guess it would be some of that alpha amylase that would be in there, um, which which we have not seen. Um, the, the best and also most challenging part of working with heritage grain is that our sample size is so small right now. We had the benefit of, of Dick's knowledge from four decades of, of distilling and he learned again from Charlie Beam. So the cumulative amount of, of knowledge there was hundreds of years of, of combined knowledge for the, for the Rosen was something that they used to distill, but now growing it again, very wildly different. What, what we've noticed is that it does want to lodge. So basically uh, a lot of the hybrid is dry, hybridized rye will mature much, much sooner. Um, with the Rosen, the stalks are much taller. So what happens is they want to lay down essentially in the mm -hmm. field. Laying down in the field is, is a challenge for a number of different reasons, but the, the two biggest are moisture content. So if, if you get a heavy rain after it lays down, it's very mm -hmm. difficult for that to dry out because it's not getting the same airflow. And then also when you go to harvest it, it, it presents another problem just because of the way the stalks are oriented to the head. So thankfully for us, our cousins have, um, their, their uncle had, um, been a collector of antique farm equipment. So we have access to older combines that they're able to work with some of these crops, but it's definitely a, a challenge. And it's also the kind of thing where the three years that we've grown it, uh, each of the three years has been in a different location up to this point. So this is the second year we're getting to grow it on the family farm. The second year that, that Robert McDonald's getting to grow it out in Imler. So hopefully we'll get to, uh, see more of an apples to apples comparison with it. Uh, but what we have seen thus far is just that the flavor is, uh, is just fantastic, uh, incredibly floral and uh, certainly worth the extra effort to grow it, but, uh, but definitely more of a challenge for sure. And I mean, the, the rye varietals that are coming up, of course, Rosen is very tied to the area that you're in. It's tied to the Monongahela style and, there are, I'm blanking on another distiller that I spoke to that was also using the Rosen rye, um, or was, was it, um, Todd Leopold? Is he also using Rosen? Uh, so I know, um, I know there's some discussion and they're, they're trying to make that happen. I don't think Todd has, has used it yet. Um, but, uh, I'm trying to think maybe Yanni out in, out in, uh, Gettysburg is using it. The folks at Liberty Pole, um, also have some Rosen that they've distilled. Um, I know, um, I'm trying to think of who else. There are definitely other distilleries that, that are working with it. Uh, I'm not, Laura would be the best person to, uh, to be able to tell you that she, she's been a great resource and, uh, has, has worked to get it in, in a number of folks. And oh, also George Washington's, uh, distillery, um, mm -hmm. was using the Rosen as well, which is, uh, really exciting to see it in such a historic location. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I love the, uh, the rise being used to the, to the areas, you know, fitting the areas that they're in. So 
recent uh, conversations have brought me a little farther north. You know, it's in upper New York, upper and western New York, and into the Midwest where they're using the Danko rye oh. instead of rosin. So this is, you know, Dancing Goat, um, Black Button, raising those, that variety instead. And uh, I wanted to do kind of a side-by-side of, of your uh, rye with theirs just to see the different flavors with both of those distilleries as yours does uh, make a big effort to let the grain shine. Yeah. You know, when our normal rye is a, um, a blend of Danko and Brisetto rye. Okay. Oh, yeah. Brisetto, that's, that's, um, that's the one that Todd's using. Okay. Got it. Yeah. I don't know why that just came to mind, but that's the one or Brisetto or, or Brutzi. See, this is where yeah, the, Todd, you can't believe a Brutzi. He's using a Brutzi. So. This is where we need the cheat sheet or someone, you know. Oh, I know. <laughs> well, and it, it's so exciting. How amazing is it that we're living in a time where we're like, oh, man, we can't even remember how many distilleries are doing which heirloom grain and how many of them and which varietal. And that's just, it's so exciting. And I think with, yeah. as, as more folks start to appreciate rye and, and American whiskey in general, I think they'll, you know, appreciate a lot more of the regional styles. And then even within the regions, the different manufacturers who, who are embracing those regional styles. So it's so exciting to, to be able to even talk to folks about Riot. We so often get folks that will come visit us at the distillery. We're an hour and a half from Philly, about two and a half from New York, three, depending on traffic. But we have folks that will come out and uh, have not really experienced a whole lot of rye before. So it's so fun to be able to explain to them what makes a rye a rye and even just the different varieties within there. Um, we, prior to the pandemic, when we had more barrels laid down, we were able to do a lot more single barrels, which was a lot of fun to be able to show folks the variety of the exact same mash bill, exact same process, exact same everything, different barrel. And this is the way, this is the way it came out differently. So just to be able to, uh, take folks on those journeys is, is pretty exciting. And I think the more of those journeys that folks go on and, and the more they sort of learn and, and experience, the more they trust uh, and have a vocabulary to even discuss what's happening as they taste some of the others. Um, I know when, when we speak with folks about even nosing whiskey or, or tasting, um, we always discuss the fact that there are geeks and there are snobs. Um, nobody wants to talk to a snob, it's just no fun. Geeks are always learning and, and always happy to share. And I think with so much of, of the tastings that we do, we're always learning from folks and, and learning different ways to interpret what, what they're discussing. And they're always bringing up things that, again, are, are fascinating to, to hear folks talk about. So I think in, in the journey of whiskey as well, uh, so many folks are, are just even beginning to have the vocabulary and, and the comfort to use it even discuss some of these things as well um, so again just just a really exciting time to be involved in the industry it is and i think more than this might be my own uh, projection but more than bourbon i think rye really has that opportunity to reintroduce itself because it, it is you know it's it's almost wiped out by prohibition it's 100 years later now and only in the last couple of decades have we even seen rye being planted again being distilled and all that takes years to see if it's going to be good after distillation and, and it, it getting the, right when and getting farmers to do something new is especially in Lancaster County can be a challenge only because they're 
their industry is based on tradition and, and they're folks who want to see that something works before they'll commit to long term. So for us, um, even learning about rye ourselves, I know when we tell folks that sort of a parallel is when, when the whiskey comes off the still, it's clear. Folks are always sort of a little, not everybody, but the folks who are learning are want to know where the color comes from. And, and it's sort of a, an interesting touch point for them. Same thing with the rye when we tell folks that rye overwinters in the ground. So rye is actually planted and then in the fall spends the whole winter in the ground. And it's got to be a cold winter or that rye doesn't, doesn't flower and, and do what we need it to do in the spring. But it's not harvested till mid to end of summer. So from just a real estate standpoint, that is a long time to commit to having something in the ground. And then rye doesn't yield as much as corn does. And super basic, super obvious, but an ear of corn is this big. Some are bigger, but that big, a head of rye is that big. So when, when you're talking to farmers about yield, we had in, in Lancaster County this year with, with hybridized corn, uh, the number two corn that, that a lot of folks use in, in their whiskey, they were getting 300 bushels an acre on the top end to 240 bushels an acre on, on the low end. That said, with rye, I think with a heritage rosin, we got 45 bushels an acre. So with that also, um, when, when you're speaking with farmers and, and when you're trying to work out the economics of everything, you need to be willing to pay a lot more for that corn. I'm sorry, for the rye than you are for the corn because the corn, the corn's a 90 day corn. So you can plant right. soybeans, you can plant even an early corn with that and be able to, to turn those over. With the rye, you're pretty much committed to just growing the rye for, for that field for that year. So definitely, um, definitely a, a different um, sort of value proposition for the farmers and also something that as a distiller, you kind of have to step up and say, okay, I know this is new. If this doesn't work out, I'm still going to make good on, on what that would have cost to, to buy that, whether, whether it's harvestable or not. So it's definitely um, going to be the kind of thing where you'll see hopefully um, much closer relationships between distillers and farmers. And then mm. also the, the nice thing is that a lot more of, of that value stays directly with the farmer. I know for us, we're, we're able to um, increase what, what they would have otherwise received by, by quite a bit, which is, it's the way it should be. Um, it's, it's a much flatter um, sort of chain. You're working directly with them. There's no middleman. So it's uh, in theory better for everybody, but it takes a lot of communication and, and a lot of even um, terminology where growing rye is, as a, as a good example or heritage rye, um, you would think your instinct is to make sure it has the most nutrients possible and, and fertilize it really well. Except it turns out that rye doesn't necessarily want that. Rye kind of wants to be abused. So it's so interesting. And then the more fertile the fields are or fertilized the fields are, the looser the roots can become. And then the more it wants to lay it. So again, just learning um, sort of all the uh, the terminology and, and even uh, how, how farmers uh, work and, and how combines work, how how that little ecosystem between the farmer and the distiller, and then even trying to work with, with farmers as brewers, brewers are looking for different things from their grain than distillers are. So it's, it's so interesting to see all of it and, and get 
just the tiniest view into all that world um, by peering over Laura's shoulder as, as she's doing some of it. But again, with, with the Keystone Rose and Rye, it, um, it's the kind of thing, it's been I think eight years in the making now. Uh, and, and we're very fortunate to come in at the tail end of that and, and be able to, uh, to make whiskey out of it. Absolutely. So I think this is a great place to, to pause because I think people who are listening are really like, 40 minutes in talking about stolen wolf and you know barely mentioned uh dick at all you know he's and we you know yeah for sure but um i do want to uh to speak about his his influence kind of in a i don't know how else to say this but there have been you know, plenty of, of podcasts with or shows and, and such that have really spoken to, you know, when he both when he was alive, uh, since he's passed, about his influence at at I guess Bombergers, then Michters, then the new Michters, then um, you know, Stolen Wolf and, and what he has done and uh, what with complete respect for him, of course, I, I don't want to necessarily just speak of him for the sake of speaking of him, if you know what I mean. Um and, and but, so much a part of what we do here in in every way um, that that I think to your point he's with with Dick it's it's the kind of thing where he he knew so much from his four plus decades in the industry and I think because of the way that he came into the industry um, if at the risk of sort of uh, repeating my, myself. He, well, we, could, we could talk a little bit about it. It's fun. Yeah. Right? So, so it was just the most amazing mentor ever. Um, an unbelievably talented distiller. But I think sometimes you can be really good at things and not, not necessarily be a great human, or you can be really great at things and be pretty shitty at teaching them to other people. Excuse my language. But it was what works, was it? <laughs> really just broke things down and into such basic elements and, and describing incredibly complex things. But because Dick um, truly knew the distilling industry from the ground up, so he came out of the Korean War, uh, a lot of unemployment, went to the local unemployment office. They sent him to help dig a ditch um, a few miles away from his house. When the ditch was finished being dug, the head foreman said, hey, you showed up every day. You weren't drunk. We'd really like to hire you for what this is about to become. It's actually a distillery that's reopening. Um, it closed due to prohibition. Reopening, this is part of the expanded warehouse. So Dick became uh, part of the warehouse crew. He then worked through maintenance, ultimately became the head of maintenance. At one point, Charlie Beam said to him, hey, you seem to know how everything in here works. You show up every day, you're not drunk. Apparently a big problem back then. So <laughs> as we were discussing with the, the increased drinking in the past, uh, so he taught Dick how to distill and Dick, the only negative I can say about Dick is terrible negotiator. And I only know this because of the story he told, which is that he went into the CEO's office when he was working at Victor's. And at that point, unfortunately, Charlie Beam uh, had, had moved back to Kentucky. Dick was, was running the distillery, also head of maintenance. And he said that he needed to step away from his distiller duties. And when they asked him why, he said, because he was concerned that he was neglecting his maintenance duties. And he, he did that not as a negotiation tactic in any way, not as a, a ploy. He genuinely was concerned and knew that the distillery 
you know, marches on its, its plumbing essentially. And if that's not well cared for, it's not going to run as well as it should. So his ego was such that despite the fact that he knew all of that, he was willing to take a step back and allow others to do it just so he could focus on the things that, that he knew weren't getting attention. So that said, uh, Dick knew every piece of equipment in the distillery, knew every valve. And I think he approached distilling very much as a technician that way. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of folks that know a lot of, of the uh, sort of chemistry and science behind so much of it. And Dick knew all of that, but more um, from a practical standpoint, more that if you do X, Y will happen. And, and there were a lot of very scientific parameters that he taught us to, to pay attention to when we're making whiskey. But so much of it was that true art is an approach where you're using your five senses to monitor what's happening. And, and you're really using your, your sense of smell, sight, sound, and you know your equipment so well that you can allow those to sort of guide you in, in what you're doing. So for us, um, Dick was, we, we used to joke that he was our Yoda. I know Yoda was considerably older, but he was the kind of guy who, despite being, I guess, wow, I don't know, 78 when we first met and, and 86 when he passed, we, he, he became more than just a mentor. He, he truly became a member of our family. Um, my grandfather, uh, my dad's father passed about uh, eight months before I was born. And uh, turns out that Dick was born the exact same year, did the same tour in the Navy and the same theater. It just so much, so many similarities and, and truly, um, truly just became a member of our family. And, and despite the fact that he had so much knowledge to impart and knew that, that he was mortal, uh, never made us feel pressured to learn all that he had to teach, which just, I, I'd like to think that I would be that, uh, I don't know, that, that wise about things, but I definitely tend to uh, feel, feel time more. So again, the fact that, that he made us feel so um, comfortable learning as much as he had to teach was, was really uh, just another credit to his ability. Um, and for us, um, we always say there, there's never going to be another master distiller at Stolen Wolf. Dick was the master distiller. There's no desire to, you can't fill shoes like that. Um, but, but we're very fortunate that both my dad and I had the chance to, to learn at Dick's feet and, and we distill every, every drop here still. So everything that, that we do um, from, from the still design to the way that we prove to the way that we, we bottle is, is all due to his influence. So it's certainly the kind of thing where, uh, even though unfortunately he's no longer physically with us, uh, he's, he's someone we're constantly referencing. And uh, we always joke that uh, if, if there's a process or a procedure and anyone wants to know why it is the way it is, because Dick said so is the general guiding principle. So uh, for us, it's uh, just just an honor to, to try and carry on that tradition, but also definitely uh, daunting in that they just don't want to screw it up. It's it's such a, a proud legacy and, and one that unfortunately, if, if Dick hadn't been able to pass on nearly went extinct. So for us, it's, uh, it, it's certainly a labor of love, but something that that we hope we're doing justice um, to and, and for. So. And 
he's i mean certainly he's he's someone uh, and of course i didn't mean to sound dismissive of him earlier by any means uh he was just someone who seemed look i never got the chance to meet him uh but in speaking to uh, his colleagues at at the the modern victors if you will yeah. uh, the new incarnation verse and then some of his colleagues who had worked with him uh, at the old Michters uh, plant before it closed it dovetailed all the stories dovetailed together and uh you put it in a certain way that i wanted to to repeat which was that he was someone who was okay to work in obscurity behind what was coming out um and and that really stands in stark contrast with what we think of today in american whiskey in particular as the celebrity master distiller you know there there was not too long ago a time when most master distillers were unknown it was the got mostly the guy uh flipping the switches and testing things out behind the scenes but they weren't out front and he seemed more in the in the vein of people like uh for a contemporary of his, like an Elmer Lee type or Ruffle Trace, or George C. Stagg, I guess I should say. Uh, and then uh, today, I almost think of him like a um, like a, a Danny Kahn type at, at Barton, where like yeah. he's putting out this this massive quantity of of bourbon and whiskey in the year. But, you know, you, you don't really hear his name too much. It's more about just what they're putting out. No, it's so true. And I think Eddie Russell was probably one of the few contemporaries of his that's still, still, still doing it. And it just, I think for those guys to see the evolution in the industry has got to be pretty fascinating where Dick used to refer to, to the Schaeferstown location as the plant and not like the plant, like I make widgets, the plant as in that's where I go to, to ply my trade. And he was such a dedicated person. When, when we discussed any, you know, uh, the, the Pennsylvania Mictors sort of was a, a protracted sort of, and it, it sort of, uh, they, they began producing less and less over time. And just asking him about um, how, how the last few years were. And he, it always upset him that there was a, a batch of grain that was a little bit moldy that they made him distill and ship overseas. And he said that the great irony of it was that it was sent over, it was exported to Korea. And he said that it roughly, that, that basically he was in the Korean war, but despite the fact that they were an enemy during wartime, even then he didn't want to send moldy grain distilled whiskey out to anybody. So just his his attention to detail and, and commitment. And I think that's so much of what, what he taught us was just that Again, if, if people want to pay attention to the, who makes the whiskey, great, but it's the whiskey that should should speak for itself. And when you're here by yourself and, and you're making the whiskey, no one would know if you cut corners, but you would. Mm-hmm. And just that that reputation and knowing that that for us we're attempting to follow in his footsteps is just such a we miss him so terribly, but for us. Dick was the least sentimental person ever in such an awesome way that we always joked that if if he heard me waxing poetic about him like this, he'd tell me to get the hell back to work, that I have, I have whiskey to make and, and more things to learn. And it, it's not about talking about whiskey, it's about making whiskey. And, if, and he would he would definitely say it with a sparkle in his eye and, and a smile. But for me, uh, it's hard to miss people, but I get to 
make whiskey using the recipe and process that he taught me and carry on that legacy. And for me, I know to him that that would be more important than people talking about him, which they should be, but it's just so comforting to have something physical to throw yourself into to honor somebody. Um, and I think for, for us to be able to, to do that for Dick is, is something that is, is something we, we really treasure. Um, and it, it's definitely the kind of thing where when we had met him and, and promised him that we were going to open this distillery and, and get him back behind a still, the amount of uh, pressure that I created for myself and, and something that he never once made me feel, but it was like, okay, this guy knows so much and, and only has, he, he's human, he's mortal, that there's a finite amount of time left. Each day that he's not distilling is a tragedy in some way. And, and just being able to, to see him behind the still again and, and have him back in the distillery was truly, um, I'm, I'm a father to, to an amazing daughter and, and have a wife. And so all those things, getting married, having a kid, amazing. But up there amongst them was was being able to return Dick Stoll to to distilling here in Pennsylvania. Um, after Victor's had closed, he ultimately worked um, construction for a little while. He worked as a custodian, um, did did a bunch of other things, and during that time, H. Hirsch was released and became the first bourbon that was considered on par with with Scotch and and some of the other whiskeys around the world. So to have this person who was so celebrated, um, not being celebrated was just something that, that we felt the need uh, to correct in, in whatever small way we could. Um, and, and Dick, again, was such a whiskey geek and, and lacked any pretense of snobbery that it was great. In, in his later years, he, he tried to watch some of his sugar. So people would ask him what he, how he drank his whiskey. And he would tell them, again, with a smile, with a little bit of Diet Coke, and again, to him, at his age, that was the way he enjoyed it. And in his mind, there's no point in drinking whiskey if you're not going to enjoy it. So many, many years of his life, he did enjoy straight bourbon and straight rye. But again, just an example of how he was, where there was just no, no pretense. And he just, I think, also wanted to, to prove to people that whatever you like is, is the way you should enjoy it. Um, we had the, the opportunity to go down to uh, Kentucky with Dick and, and visit some of the distilleries. And uh, we we're at Four Roses and uh, Larry uh, from, from Silver Dollar very graciously hooked us up with an amazing tour at, at Four Roses. And we're in the gift shop at the end and, uh, and uh, Jim is, is there um, and, and Dick doesn't want to bother him. Where it's one of those things where you have these two whiskey greats and the fact that, that Dick doesn't want to bother Jim Rutledge because he's signing bottles for these other people. And then speaking to Jim Rutledge a few years later about it, where he was like, oh my God, I can't believe Dick was there and you didn't introduce me. But again, Dick was the kind of guy who it never would have occurred to him that Jim Rutledge would, would want to know who he was or speak with him. So um, again, definitely somebody who had absolutely no ego about, about what he knew or um, about what he made, but really um, was was super dedicated to making sure that that the whiskey just was was something that would stand on its own and, and speak for itself. And I think that provides a perfect bridge into into what you guys are doing now. 
into what he helped create and, and what you're continuing on with his legacy. So as you said, after, after 89, when the Michters finally closed down, uh, he had all of these odd jobs in between. And, and then suddenly, not suddenly, I guess, but you know, you're, you come to him and you say, you're going to start a new distillery and this goes forward. Uh, you mentioned one of the things that you were able to kind of bring over from that era was the mash bill, the 60, 30, 10. Yeah. Um, I'm curious what else, uh, you know, what things were you, and really, I guess, was Dick allowed to, and then you by extension allowed to, um, to bring over from his own experience, what were some things that you weren't able to bring over? Um, so yeah. um, with, uh, in, in terms of the, um, the ideas behind it and, and the processes and procedures, um, the things that Dick learned, he was, he was able to, to fully bring um, to bear in, in our distillery. And in certain ways, there were a few things he couldn't do when he was um, at the Schaeferstown location, just because he was the head distiller, but he wasn't the guy purchasing the grains. He wasn't the guy who had final say over what things got bottled at. So um, for us, it was definitely uh, the ability to, to sort of see all of his dreams realized. Um, so for us, still design was huge. Um, the column still is something he was pretty adamant about. Um, the beginning, um, we discussed just doing pot stills and, and there's definitely a certain romance to pot distillation and pot, pot stills make fantastic whiskey as many of our, our friends um, and, and their efforts will, will attest to. The interesting thing for us with the column, and we always tell people when, when they come in for a tour, is that we do understand that using a column is cheating by using modern technology. And that modern technology that we're cheating and using is from the 1860s. So we feel like it's kind of okay that we're, we're dipping back, we're you know, using this, this future forward technology, but in the same reason, uh, or for the same reasons that you probably don't cook over an open hearth in your home, we use the column still. And, and that's because with an open hearth, you get amazing flavor, very, very unique. It's also a lot harder to replicate. So for us, the ability to have the column and be able to dial in that, that flavor profile um, from when we turn on our column to when whiskey starts to come out, about five to eight minutes. Um, so definitely a lot of control and, and keeping the, the mash in there for long enough that we can extract and, and really riding it pretty hard at the bottom. But then also um, columns can get a bad name. And, and that's because in theory, you can use a column to make neutral grain spirits and you could strip out all the flavor. For us, we're using our column just to strip and get, get off the grain. And then a lot of what's happening for us is, is being done in, in the pot still behind us. The pot still behind us is is only a 50 gallon pot still. Um, the the way it looks uh, with the camera makes it look a little bit bigger than it is. I was going to um, say it looks looks considerably bigger than that. But, right. Yeah. But, and and for us, um, coming off in in uh, the lower 130s um, is definitely something that that Dick was very adamant about. Um, I think as a as somebody who is a artisan producer of anything. I, you, you don't get into it necessarily to be wealthy or because you don't like to do things the harder way. You definitely are, are doing things in a, a small batch. Um, 
oftentimes uh, without economies of scale. With, with R still, um, it enables us to have some economies of scale, but still also have all the control um, that, that we feel we need to, to make the spirit that we're making. So we, our rye is a sweet mash rye, and then we're also doing a, a sweet mash bourbon as well. So um, with, with those um, both techniques that, that Dick had taught us, um, they did do a bunch of sour mash at, at the Schaferstown location as well. Um, but, but this um, definitely produces a, a very unique flavor. Um, also with, with the sour mash rye, or I'm sorry, sweet mash rye, excuse me. Um, a, a lot of folks claim, and I, I don't know if there's truth to it or not, that a sweeter mash rye and, and rye in general is, is certainly drinkable at a younger age than, than bourbon is. Um, I think it, just has to do with the, the nature of the grain and, and the uh, esters that are coming over. But, but with that sweet mash rye, um, again, Dick said, said the barrel proof uh, 109 is, is where we go into our barrels. So definitely a lot lower um, than, than some folks, not quite as low as some, um, but, but everything from the, the char that we use to, um, to the style of, of the rye through to the mash bill is was all Dick's doing. Um, and for us, it was one of those things where to have, to start a distillery is so daunting, but to have somebody who knows so much and is so steeped in history, it seemed like lunacy to sort of uh, go against that. So, so for us, um, it, was, uh, it, it was definitely something that trying to, to learn all the nuances of, of everything that Dick knew one of the ex most exciting products that we were able to create with Dick was our apple brandy. And that was because Dick had distilled bourbon before, he distilled rye, also corn whiskey, which we make here. And all of those were, were the recipes that Charlie Bean had taught Dick over the years. But with the apple brandy, that was the first thing we got to do that Dick had never done before. So for us, that was sort of uniquely special in that um, carrying on his traditions is, is sort of what... Uh, which gets us out of bed in the morning, but also to be able to have something that we were able to collaborate with him on that's uniquely just our own was also um, very, very special as well. Um, so, and, and again, uh, my dad and I um, still, every drop that, that comes out of here, we've, we've got a gentleman, Paul Martin, who helps us quite a bit and thankfully is younger and, and has a stronger back than we do. Uh, but but you can see um, over here. Oh, sorry, I'm not used to pointing behind me. Um, is our our mash cooker? We're actually um, we're fortunate to have so much demand, and and in an effort to keep up with that demand, we just doubled our uh, our cooker size. So we're now able to wow. to double double batches um, all the time, which is very exciting, but also uh, also a little scary as well. So um, and for us, just making sure that even though we were scaling up the, the cooker, that the mash coming out of it was, was the same just for, for flavor profile concerns. And that's why when we, we purchased the still initially, we did oversize it. So our still, you can see the column right, oh, I'm getting better, is right over here. And it's funny, when we, we first put it in the column, uh, the column is 18 feet tall, but when we post it on social media, it's, it's difficult to tell scale. And, um, we had to crane it in. So one of the pictures, it's dangling off a crane in, and we told people that it's a 12 inch column. And they, they 
LOL'd, as the kids say these days. <laughs> um, and, and someone asked us if it was similar to Spinal Tap Stonehenge, us not realizing that outside of the industry, it makes sense that people wouldn't understand that in the industry, we refer to column capacity by diameter, which is, is more indicative of, of what the column can put out. So even with that, that essentially small by industry standards, 12 inch column, we're, we're able to crank out quite a bit of whiskey um, in, in here. So we'll be able to do um, a, a full, which again is laughably small to the big guys, but to us to be able to do six barrels a day is, is very exciting. Um, and and uh, in, in our our uh, small scale is is definitely uh, again a, a big jump for us, but we're able to to do that without changing our still configuration at all. We just uh, running more hours, so just less sleep for me, but otherwise <laughs> uh, otherwise the same. So that that for us was uh, was definitely part of Dick's wisdom, where it was like, look, just oversized in the beginning knowing that you have room to grow and then also that you can maintain that that style and that quality that you've developed uh, as as you increase the the match so the whiskey ring podcast is proudly sponsored by impex beverages impex imports premium and rare whiskey gin rum mezcals liqueurs and cordials from all over the world from scotland to japan to israel belgium and wales whether it's Kilhoman, Pandaren, Portiskeg, Glenallachy, Ohishi, Fukano, M&H, Ardnamurkin, Black Tot, and more, there's guaranteed to be something in the Impex portfolio you'll love. Impex also oversees some of the most prestigious independent bottlers in the game, including Single Malts of Scotland, Single Cast Nation, Adelphi Selection, and its own Impex collection. Take a look at their site, impexbev.com, or reach out if you're curious about their offerings. I'm proud to have many of their bottles on my shelves and love sharing them with friends whenever I can. Thank you to Sam and to the team for joining the Whiskering Podcast as guest and sponsor. Sure. And, uh, you know, you pointing out that it was the a 50 gallon still behind you was a huge help because I was wondering, I mean, again, um, I'll, I'll take a screenshot. It looks probably close to about a hundred, just again, just by eye and because of you know, camera angle and whatever. But I was thinking if that's about 50, then the column is somewhere between 12 and 18 in, in diameter. Cause it's, you know, just enough looking at still configurations to kind of pick it out of the lineup. And the thing that can be deceiving with the thumper as well is, so we have, it's a thumper, but it's also a doubler. And to get super geeky for a second, the difference yeah. between a thumper and a doubler is a thumper is a passive vessel that the heat that warms it is coming solely from what's in front of it. So it could be a, a, a copper pot or it could be a column, but it's solely heated by the vapor coming over from there. With ours, ours is actually a doubler as well. So what you can't see is there's an internal copper coil in there that's two inches thick that runs about halfway up there. That, that does enable us to add additional heat if we'd like to to uh, lower the proof coming off. So um, it, it's technically a dumper, a, a thumper doubler. Nobody wants to drink whiskey made from a dumper, so we haven't patented that term yet. Yeah. But, yeah, not the greatest. Um, yeah, not the greatest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but it does throw off sort of um, sort of the way it looks, and and the way that we can have a a, 
a large column like that and a, a small thumper is basically because in the column you have all the grain and all the excess water. We're, we're stripping off all of the grain, a small amount of the water, and then basically that's acting as a, Dick used to refer to do it as, as polishing the whiskey, essentially. It's giving it one more distillation to kind of, uh, again, polish it up and, and make sure that that flavor is a, a lot more of, of what we're looking for, for in terms of the esters that, that are coming out. Absolutely. And uh, before we step away from the specs for a second, I just want to make sure I have them all right. So um, you guys are using 53-gallon uh, barrels? Uh, so we, we use uh, predominantly 53-gallon barrels. Our Cooper went through uh, a period where they couldn't get in. We use air-dried staves in all of our cooperage as well. So we actually did a small run of 30-gallon barrels last year, but 99% of what we do are 53s. Just so in the future, if you ever come back to this and you're like, that guy lied to me and told me they never do 30s, we do have a, a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of 30s. Um, but but yeah, almost all, everything we do is, is 53. Sure. And um, just want to check char level, because you mentioned that you do the same char level. So it, exactly. So for us, um, it depends. We use um, some barrels that, that there's uh, what they call grooves in the staves. So for those, we, we use a number three. For the ones that are not grooved, we use a number four. Um, and for us, we use um, barrels that, that have air-dried staves. So a lot of folks um, complain about younger whiskey and how the tannins are, are very present, sort of hit mm -hmm. you in the, in the jaw. With the air-dried staves, there's, the, the tannin isn't, uh, if you never introduce the tannin into the whiskey, you don't have to take it out later. So mm -hmm. that's sort of the theory in using those. Also, um, younger rye, um, and this isn't just me saying this, it's, I'm, I'm gonna quote Sam Kumlenich, who's quoting Fritz Maytag, that young rye is very drinkable. Something about um, the flavor of the grain in young rye is, can be very delicious. So for mm -hmm. us, um, right now, most of our flagship um, releases are around a year. We do have older whiskey that, that we're holding on to to age out more, but we do hope to to retain that that one year age release just so folks can continue enjoying that uh, that grain forward uh, note there or notes, excuse me. Absolutely, and, that, and that's exactly what I wanted to go to next. Was uh, you know want to make sure we get to the products, of course. I mean, we got to talk about the whiskeys that that you got behind you, and. Uh, when I was so, first of all, thank you for for sharing those with me. Um, I was able to try the uh, the Pennsylvania the Pennsylvania rye rather, uh, the apple brandy, and the um, Kindred Spirits rye. Oh, fantastic! Uh, so uh, something and something I was noting. I, whenever I do a you know a uh, a review or I'm trying something for the first time from from a new new distillery to me, I try to do it as blind as possible or as you know without any preconceptions as possible and uh number one you're totally right that i think across the board young rye just it's just more drinkable i i'm i've asked so many people why that is from everyone from you know david whitmer up at mgp who's dealing with more rye probably than anyone else in the world to um you know to, to you guys to um, the guys at Dancing Goat and Black Button, 
And everyone's like, yeah, this is true. We don't exactly know why, but it's true. Uh, no, it's so fascinating. And, and it seems like folks either, um, a lot of folks respond to why and love it, or it, it nec- there don't seem to be a lot of folks on the fence about rye. They either seem to really enjoy that spice or we'll have folks that come in, try bourbon and say, oh, that caramel sweetness is really what I like. And the person sitting next to them goes, oh, no, that's what ruins it. It's the rye spice that really makes it. So it's so interesting to see folks. Um, and, and also, I think a lot of folks are coming at it predominantly having tasted bourbon in their lives. I mean, 90-something percent of the whiskey made in the United States is is bourbon. So if you're drinking iced tea and expecting lemonade, I like both. But if I'm drinking one expecting the other, it can be very off-putting. So, right. And even a, you know, quote unquote, barely legal rye at a 51% uh, rye in the mash bill, still going to be a little spicier than a 51% bourbon or it's so any true. bourbon for that matter. And particularly uh, with the age as well and, and how long the barrels had to take over as well, where mm-hmm. they, they claimed that uh, over 18 years, it's very difficult to even determine the original base spirit of something that the basically the the barrel has taken over so much and again i i can't speak to that i don't drink a lot of 18 year plus plus releases but so i've been told honestly i i've kind of dumped on older american whiskeys for this reason but uh it just there have been so few that i've enjoyed for that reason that i'd like the 18 even as young as like young quote unquote as as a 15 year or but it just tastes like oak water to me at that point, and especially if it's proofed down. Like if, if it's a, at proof, let's say, you know, at barrel proof or whatever, yeah. chances are it's already low at that point because to, you know, to, eight, to 18 years, you can't exactly be putting it at the top for a house. Uh, but it's also then proofed down to like 90 proof or something, which at 18 years old, you're proofing it up to 90 proof. You're adding all this water at the end. And yeah, it's just... I, I'd much rather have a younger bourbon, like eight's yeah. 10, let's say. And or, that, and that's always what Dick said as well. He couldn't believe with A.H. Hirsch that there was as popular as it was mostly because of the age. And he said that they used to have barrels that would get lost in the warehouse and they would sheepishly blend them with younger whiskey because nobody at that time wanted to drink whiskey that was that old. And I think mm-hmm. he always seemed to think that it was scotch that basically changed people's views on that and that because mm-hmm. older scotch was more prestigious that because unfortunately most people don't realize that they're using second plus fills in scotland wildly yeah. different than that first fill so again just that that difference and, and that's something we always try and let folks know is that when you're trying whiskeys from other countries it helps to know what the different guidelines are just so you can further appreciate what you're drinking mm-hmm. Canadian rye, obviously very different than an American rye or can mm-hmm. be. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's so interesting. Absolutely. And but using the second fill for, for scotch and for, I mean, for really most whiskeys outside of America are using at least some percentage of ex-bourbon barrels just because they're very available and, and they're cheaper because you can't use them again uh, for bourbon at least. And they're also, they have a lower angel share dealing it's with like a 2% cool. angel share in Scotland. Yeah. Um, so this, I mean, this goes to uh, something I definitely want to talk about with you as well, which was the, the barrel influence and controlling that influence. So you mentioned using the air drying, the air dried staves. 
a uh, master stroke by Dave Pickerel to figure that out after hundreds oh. of years of people using barrels um, to just leave it out and let the tannins just fall out and black dust under under the wood. I mean, it's made such a difference in so many whiskeys and bourbons and ryes that it's uh, some people forget that that was him basically at Maker's Mark figuring out how to get tannins out of the out of a weeder. Um, but you you spoke to that and, and mentioned it in the fact that both now and also from really from from Dick's mouth that you want the grain to shine through, you know, uh, and that at a certain age you can't tell what it is and if you can't tell what it is then i mean you might still enjoy it but what makes it different at that point so it's so true and even um Duke was very adamant um that and i think i started to talk about it and because i tend to jump around jumped on to something else but just the, um the the proof off the still be low enough that you're really getting a nice wide cut and it sounds it sounds silly to talk about cuts when you're you're using a column but with the the pot still in line there um we we have a lot of control at, at the proof that it comes off at and i think as a a young person learning a craft the the thought that the more attention you pay the better it is but at a certain point and especially with proof i think there's diminishing returns there and there's a tendency to want to come off in a higher proof i think with with some young distillers just because you want to make sure that you don't have off flavors in there but the problem is then you're stripping out a lot of that grain flavor and you're stripping out a lot of those esters that you really need in a older, more mature whiskey. So it's again, having someone like Dick to help us avoid those pitfalls is, or what was so crucial, but definitely things that, uh, that we think a lot about now. And also so many of the things that, that he taught us that he knew as gospel were able to, because they're doing more and more studies actually put some, science behind some of the things that that he taught us as well and, and be able to point to specific reasons why why it does work and you said uh just to make sure that the you're coming off the still in like the low 130s we are yeah yeah so and, and i'm sorry please no no I, i'm sorry so I, I just want to make very clear to you, you can go as geeky as you want to like this is kind of a niche audience um yeah. for everyone listening and uh, i think they can definitely handle you go and as as niche and as as nerdy as you want to on this so feel free oh uh, right on well and and so operating a still there's sort of this idea that there's one way to operate the still and that no matter who runs it it's going to come off the same way and just as an example we're we're shooting for our our top temperature on the still everyone's top temperature is going to be slightly different for us mm -hmm. at, at let's say 195 with the way our deflagmator works so mm -hmm. just to get super geeky for a second and and if i'm mansplaining please forgive me but <laughs> so a deflagmator is basically a condenser that's on top of the vessel that will create reflux and and help increase the proof and also uh, increase the purity of the alcohol the a condenser is anything that is exterior to the vessel that basically performs the same function so right over here is our high wine condenser so as it comes out of the top of of the pot still over here it, it's condensed in there. So when you're running the still, you can increase the heat at the bottom to reach your top temperature, and then also increase the deflagmator to hit that temperature, or you can back off slowly at the heat on the bottom. And 
we're very big believers in running it as hard as we can on the bottom to get as much of the oil and flavor out and then still running it as lightly as we can up top as well. So it's sort of uh, in our mind or, or to our mind, a, a little bit of a unique way to run, run the column and certainly something that we could up the proof coming out of the column a lot more than we are. But for us, um, we're worried. And, and as Dick had taught us, we feel that we would ultimately lose flavor that way. So for us to be able to really keep an eye on on our proof and also um, one of the things that as much as Dick was was very artisanal in his approach, he was very adamant about pH going into the still as well and, and pH when you're mashing. So for mm -hmm. us, I think um, even the rate with which we run the mash through the column sort of helps us coax out some of of what um, we refer to as our or at, is the house style here at Stolenwald. Mm -hmm. So it's it's so interesting with with so many of the inputs um, and and the way that you can restrict the outflow or increase it to again coax out some of those flavors. Um, also in in the whiskey world. Um, whether or not you you clean your your thumper is a huge topic of debate. Some people will tell you that you never once ever 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 clean it once you. Other people swear by cleaning it every so often and doing. So again, here at Stolen Wolf, we uh, we're sort of in the middle. We uh, we run a few different products. So in between products, we're definitely cleaning. Otherwise, we're we're not at just the. Uh, sort of ester soup that that develops in there um is uh is pretty exciting um so so yeah it's uh super um super boring to some people to watch alcohol just sort of flow out of a tube all day um for us it's just super super exciting the, the changes in smells even the, the the spiral and the way that that changes come in really just uh super super awesome and I mean, you've also, you tease this a little bit in, in terms of what do you, what do you don't do in, in a good way, which is, um, you know, a column still, you can get pretty high proofs off of. I mean, if you get a big enough, tall enough column still, or, and really pump that thing, you can get neutral grain spirit. We helped make sanitizer. So it was one of those things where it was like, wow, we never intended to use this for what we're using it for, but here we are. And yeah. Right. But it's, it's worth noting that, you know, let's even put aside the fact that it's, that it's hybridized in a certain way to have the pot still feeding into the column still that column still doesn't equal uh, bad whiskey. doesn't equal necessarily thin whiskey. It's how you use it just like everything else. And, um, that's why I wanted to make sure about, you know, what, what proof you're coming off the still at, because, you know, it, another thing that younger distilleries can sometimes do it to make profit, honestly, is you go to a higher proof one, if you want to make vodkas or gins, um, cause you get a cleaner spirit that way. But also because if you're going up to and coming off at a higher proof, then you can enter at a higher proof and it's, you know, it's fewer barrels that you need and you get more volume and, you know, and there, and there are plenty of ones who do it and, and do it well and plenty who don't do it so well, let's say, but, but there is that trade-off of, you know, if, if you, if you're putting a barrel entry, let's say not even off the stove, but barrel entry at 125, 
versus what you guys are doing at about 109. Uh, that's a, a, it seems like a small difference, but in reality, it's a huge difference just in terms of how much water you're adding at what points and it's can so, really change the character of the whiskey. It, it's so true. And, and to that point as well, um, we do filter um, with using a protocol Dick, Dick taught us, but we don't chill filter. So it, it sort of subtle difference in, in some people's mind, but when you chill filter, um, there's a lot more of, uh, of fats and oils that will coagulate. Uh, the filtration that we're doing, um, again, Dick, Dick was referring to it as a one final polishing. So for us, it's, it's a lot more about uh, articulate and a little bit of the off flavors that, that you want to make sure don't make it through. Um, mm -hmm. but, but no chill filtration happening for us. And it's, it's noticeable. And I'm, there are very few things that I'm really adamant about when it comes to my whiskey, but, uh, I'm, I'm really against chill filtration just because I love the feeling of the, the oils and the fattiness in it. And I'm also someone who, who has been very open that I think rye, rye might be able to stand up to it a little bit better because it has so much flavor, especially when you get into the, the heirloom varietals it has so much flavor innate to it that all right if it's a you know if you chill filter it a little bit you can maybe get away with it but you know if you're using yellow dent number two rye uh corn rather to make a bourbon you're dealing with such a thin distillate to begin with that to then chill filter it and take out all that mouthfeel is just it's like it makes my skin crawl oh but, no, it, it's such a uh, and, and it's so interesting the things that were that Dick was in the industry for such a long time that, that certain trends came and went. Um, he, he also in the beginning of, of his return to distilling didn't fully understand the market's desire for higher proof releases. And then after seeing the response to them and speaking with customers and seeing what they were getting out of it, he always enjoyed higher proof releases when we were tasting barrels, but didn't realize how much the market had matured or how much the average craft whiskey consumer had learned during his, his time away from the industry that it was so interesting to see. But again, the, the one, one sort of constant that, that remained again, was that, that uh, just not being comfortable with chill filtration. Um, it was something that, that they never did um, when, when he was master still up in Schaeferstown and, Again, just for so many reasons that that he went through with us, it just was was antithetical to the style of whiskey he was trying to create. So, and and not that there aren't some folks that that do it very well, but it, uh, yeah, it, it's not part of our process. So, and, absolutely, and, and it's that that we prove. Um, we we try to we're of the school of of trying to prove at a slower rate uh, when when possible. So, sure, it's not like shocking the whiskey with you know a gallon or two of water at, at once that's or so. Exactly, yeah. That's exactly right. I mean, that it's perfect to introduce. So again, it's an audio, mostly audio, but I'll hold it up. Anyway, the, um, the Pennsylvania rye bottle that I have, uh, you know, it's a Pennsylvania rye whiskey, 90 proof, 45% ABV. Uh, it's about a year old, as you said. So uh, when I looked at the, the bottle, this is before I'd done any like research or, or looked at the website. I really, again, wanted to come at it blind. Um, I looked at the bottle and the first thing I noticed was that it wasn't, there was no straight on the front of the label. And that was before I looked at the back of the label to see what 
that it was about a year old or so. Um, but it being awry, I was like, all right, it's a year old. I've had, I have a nine year, a nine month old rather, um, rye that someone gave me from another Pennsylvania distillery that I thought was four to five years old when I tried it blind. So, uh, I was like, that should be no problem, but I tried it. And, uh, the things that stood out were really the things that you seem to be striving for, which are one, the, the mouthfeel was very clear. Um, actually I'm skipping ahead of myself that before the mouthfeel, the nose was very clear. Thank you. So you, know, much. you, you knew it was a rye right away. It wasn't a question wow. of, Oh, is this like a slightly rye bourbon or what? Like, no, this is a rye. Um, Oh, that's fantastic. Kind of, you, know, you get a little bit of the guaiacol from the black pepper notes and the, as I guess redundant, but you get a little black pepper in there, uh, some of the more herbaceous esters in there. Um, not particularly sweet, like not, not a Maryland style sweet rye in there, um, but also not, I, I, I was writing in my notes that it wasn't, it was somewhere in the middle. Like the Maryland rye can be very sweet, or, and Kentucky rye for that matter too. Uh, but also you have on the other side, the hundred percent rye is the 95, five that can be very dilly, very, um, very herbal. Woody herb. Yeah. Very herbal. Almost to the point of, I have, I've had tried a couple that kind of came off like, um, like the Ricola, Ricola, uh, herb. Yeah. yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. And it's, it's such a, an iconic note that you just, you know, it immediately it's herbs and honey and, and, you know, it has a place, but, um, and some rise actually pull it off quite nicely, but uh, this was kind of, it, it was in the middle. It had the herbiness, the herbaceousness, but not the woodiness, the um, sweeter herbs without the sweetness, the black pepper without being um, what could be described as, as really tannic and, and woody because it can get so powerful. And this was all, again, 90 proof. I'm also not someone who's shy about like. I'm so glad to hear the joy. And, you know, I'm not shy about saying I like that higher proof stuff too. Like some oh. of my favorite stuff is 130, 140 proof whiskeys. Um, and, but that being said, that means that if it's a lower proof for me to really enjoy it, it's got to stand up. Oh, and, and honestly, I really think it does. And, uh, you know, at, at the risk of sounding too like uh, sycophantic or, or such about it, it does make a difference. And the more, you know, the more I listen to podcasts and shows that you've been on where we've spoken about the ideal of wanting the grain to come first, the grain to show, you know, enough barrels. So you know, it's a whiskey, but not so much that you lose it. It's a rye. And that's kind of positioned right there. And it's, it's great where you could, you could age it a little bit more if you wanted to, you could probably get another just, you know, gut reaction, probably another two, three years in Oak without it going to you were super excited yeah. as well um, yeah and but it also drinks really nicely at 90 you know i'll admit i, I would love to try it off you know at barrel strength uh right out, right out of barrel but okay sounds good um, i'm also you know i'm not too far i'm a couple hours away but i could yeah, make exactly. a drive down uh and it was it was fascinating it was another example of a young rye that really held up didn't have to be high proof and it was it was a really solid thing so um i know it's been you know a year and a half almost two years since dick passed but clearly the the ethos is still there oh, about what you want oh that means so much thank you 
Absolutely. And I wanted to make very clear that that's, you know, how I, how I felt about it. And uh, it'll be in my written review too, I'm sure when that comes out, but that's, that's really how I feel about it. And thank you so much. Um, so I know we're, we're at about the hour and a half mark. I, I want to make sure to uh, hit a couple of the other products that, that you guys are putting out. Um, I got a couple other questions about the rise and stuff. Uh, so um, we're going to, I'm going to up the pace just a little bit to sure, <laughs> so we no you know, make sure you're not there until it's, you know, until it's tomorrow. Um, but um, what, I, you know, one question I forgot to ask earlier is so it's jumping back a little bit to the history, but so before prohibition, it's very rye forward kind of crop wise, rye forward area. Um, then it goes to tobacco and they're saying, you know, it, it's so plentiful that you can, grow anything and growing corn multiple times a season uh is there would you consider there to be a a legacy of bourbon in the area or corn whiskey if you want to put it more generally as there is a legacy of rye so it, it's so interesting i think the i don't know that a lot of people associate pennsylvania with bourbon whiskey and i think corn whiskey is the kind of thing that will eventually be associated with Pennsylvania again. I think right now, if you say corn whiskey, 99% of people think mellow corn and, yep. and aren't really sure. And, and because Kentucky has such a, because people know bourbon comes from corn, I think a lot of folks do sort of naturally go to that. But the crazy thing is that a lot of folks will freely admit that A.H. Hirsch was one of the best bourbons ever produced. I came from Pennsylvania. So I think in that way, there's an incredibly strong legacy of bourbon in Pennsylvania, but I think it's sort of a roundabout way and that a lot of folks who will recognize that the quality was there, they just don't necessarily know where it originally came from um, in, in terms of the Hirsch. I, I think a lot of folks, um, I, and I don't know how many new entrants to the bourbon world even know about Hirsch, to be honest. Um, so, so yeah, that, I didn't know for a good couple of years that it existed and yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm still a long way away from trying it, to be honest. So. Oh man. Yeah. And, and it's funny because um, having the opportunity to try it with Dick several times, the, the first thing that he would say every time we had a chance to try it together was just, this was the exact same whiskey we always made. It just got aged longer. So it was so interesting to see the, and, and again, I think some people were disappointed when they would bring their bottles unopened bottles of Hirsch and have him sign them. And he would, they, they would ask about it. I think a lot of folks think that maybe it was filtered through like a unicorn horn or that the angels were, you know, there was a chorus singing or, and, and as Dick said uh, again and again, it was the exact same whiskey. It just had a chance to age out a little bit longer and, and was vatted for a time. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it was so interesting that again, super, super popular bourbon that at the time when they came out with it, nobody bought it because it was like $80 a bottle, which at that time was, and now people can't believe that, that they didn't buy cases of it when they could have. So mm -hmm. it's always, uh, always interesting, but yeah, no, that, that's a really good question. I, I would say that folks that know about Hirsch probably associate Pennsylvania with bourbon or, or good bourbon. I would say a lot of the younger folks who, who've more recently come to craft spirits probably don't in, in a lot of ways. I, I think they probably think more about, about rye if they think about Pennsylvania whiskey at all, really. 
Sure. And granted, look, again, I'm, I'm right in New York. I'm right, I guess, not, I can't say right across the river from you guys because there is New Jersey in the way, but um, I went to school in Binghamton. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I went to school in uh, at Binghamton, which is 10 miles from the border. So that at least I could, you know, dip down into, <laughs> into Pennsylvania. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I never thought of it. It's, it's all, it, we're conditioned. It's all Kentucky. It's, you know, if, if you go to Rye, maybe you're thinking usually MGP yeah. um, or, or maybe Maryland, but really MGP, to be honest, like that, that triangle of, of Tennessee, Kentucky, Indiana, maybe a little Ohio in there. Um, and there's, well, in, in some ways it's almost, it must be freeing in a way. I'm sorry yeah. to cut you off on that. It, it no, must no, be freeing no, because no, you, you no, can start thing, from scratch. Well, yeah, uh, you, it, it's so true um, about being able to start from scratch. And, and one thing that um, is so interesting is the, the way folks learn about things, sometimes history gets a little out of whack. Folks will say to us, oh, we hear that you guys have very limestone rich water, just like they do in Kentucky. And it's interesting because we do. And not only is our water um, have lots of dissolved limestone, it also has limestone that contains dolomite, which is very similar to Kentucky. But the folks that started here ultimately found water that, so it, it's so interesting the way things sort of almost work backwards in, in a certain way where people will, will discover bourbon and then come back to rye and then learn about the history of Pennsylvania rye. So for us, however they, they learn about it is exciting for us. And, and also just to see folks like um, George Washington's distillery down in DC running rye and, and the folks at West Overton out in Western Pennsylvania celebrating Abraham Overholt's legacy running, running their rye. And I think it's the kind of thing where I, I was living in Brooklyn when, when we first decided to do this before I moved home. And I think sometimes living in and around New York City, um, you're so, you're exposed to so many trends as, as they emerge. And, and so many of, of my friends are, are who, who live there are so creative and, and so ahead of so many other things that when, when we were living in Brooklyn and, and trying to open the distillery, I remember asking my wife if, if the country's interest in craft distilling had already peaked and, and if we missed the opportunity to educate people about what had happened in Pennsylvania. And what's so fascinating is uh, I think now having had a little bit more distance to look at things and sort of see where the market is, so few people are aware of, of Pennsylvania's legacy that it is so exciting to be able to help spread a little bit of that gospel. And there's so many other great folks that are, are doing that as well. Um, but again, it's, it's, as you said, um, really, really exciting, also slightly daunting because almost where do you even begin to, to help tell folks? So I, I think Kentucky does become sort of the way that, that a lot of folks describe it, where it's like, okay, well, you know about the whiskey industry in Kentucky, and then sort of using that as a touch point to almost go back in time and, and talk about our place and, and where we were in it, um, which is, is, is pretty interesting um, and, and definitely a lot of fun to, uh, to be able to tell folks as well. Every so often we get folks that come in and tell us that it's unfortunate um, that we're lying to everybody and that we can't possibly make bourbon here because we're not in Kentucky. So we very gently try to explain to them that, that that's a very popular misconception and, and not necessarily the case, but 
But again, you still have those folks that will, whether they be in message boards online or in the tasting room, very loudly declare that bourbon can only come from Kentucky. So I think uh, given, given that level of sort of awareness, we're, we're happy that people even know that, that rye uh, exists in Pennsylvania. And we have to be reminded as, uh, you know, as long-term whiskey, you know, long, I should say, let me rephrase that. We have to be reminded as people who have a long-term interest in whiskey, both looking backwards and forwards, that, you know, we were all at that point, at a certain point where we thought that you could only make bourbon in Kentucky, that, exactly. um, I mean, there, there are any number of, of those kinds of things that it could only be four years old or more. You know, there was, there was a point in my journey where, I was just starting to drink whiskeys, uh, American whiskeys, I should say. And, you know, wild turkey was a little too spicy for me. Sure. You know? And, and that's where we always talk about the geeks for snobs, where geeks realize that if somebody is just showing an interest in whiskey and wants to learn more, that's really exciting. And, and that should be what it's about because we all are, are guilty of, uh, repeating misconceptions. We're all guilty of not knowing what we don't know when we start things and sometimes helping to educate others or, or even share what we think we know with others helps us to learn more about what we do or, or don't know. So it's mm -hmm. for us really uh, exciting and even just working with folks to help develop that vocabulary of what they're tasting and what they're nosing. So many mm -hmm. folks uh, get want to taste the whiskey because that's tasting it is is where it's at in their mind but there's over 10,000 primary aromas there's only five maybe six i guess actually five uh primary flavors salty sweet bitter umami and sour but then with with all of those aroma combinations sometimes the spirit can almost tell you more by by nosing it than you can by tasting it especially if folks don't have a lot of experience tasting spirits as well. Everybody smelled things throughout their life. Not everybody's been crazy enough to take, you know, hundred plus proof alcohol and, and sip it straight. So. Right. And th there's, there's so much of the neurobiology that goes into that. And there are people who are much more eloquent than I am who can, who can speak to this, but to put it bluntly, there's one, the, just the olfactory sense you're nosing. Uh, one is usually stronger in women. That's yep. scientifically proven fact. It has nothing to do with, with gender, sex, conformity, nothing. It's yeah. just a fact. Um, and then there's also that of those five senses, your five uh, common senses, the olfactory bulb is closest to the more primal parts of the brain. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, and you smell things in... This isn't exactly a perfect metaphor, but in many ways, you smell things before you see them, taste them, touch them. Um, and it's because you could smell things that were dangerous before, you know, if you saw them and they were dangerous, it could be too late if you tasted it, it could be too late. But if you smell it, assuming it's not an aerosolized compound, that it in itself is dangerous, in which case, you know, you're SOL. That's uh, <laughs> you know, but otherwise, it's, it's a, the most primal of the five senses. Uh, and that's fascinating. Yeah, and Lisa, there there are people who are who are you know neurobiologists and and chemists who can speak to that much more. So, but um, on the other end of the spectrum, I consider myself among these people who have made fun of Woodford Reserve for saying they've got two hundred aromas and flavors in their whiskeys. 
sorry, I will continue to make fun of them on this one because maybe it's true. Maybe scientifically, if you put it through a, you know, a, a gastrospectrometer and a microspectrometer and all these different things, you can pull out the esters for all those things. But if there's 200 of them, like, is any one person, is any group of people going to be able to pick out all 200? Are you going to be able to do it before they evaporate, before they, you know, aerosolize and, and escape? It's just ridiculous. So to come back to the happy middle, middle ground there, <laughs> um, this is where I think, um, you know, whiskeys like, like the rye that you're producing. And granted, I haven't, I have not tried yet the, the bourbon. Uh, so I, I can't speak to that, but especially the rye that you're producing with the, being grain forward, but not um, young grainy. Yeah. Uh, and I said the same thing about black button, actually that, um, you know, their four grain bourbon is about two years old, but uh, you can taste each of the individual grains that are in there, but they don't taste young. They taste like the grain. Um, and this is where I think of, you know, their bourbon and your rye really have a huge role to play in, in that education that you were talking about. Uh, is it's, it's fine to introduce someone to rye with a, you know, with an MGP or, or um, you know, I love Sagamore. I would introduce people to that on Sagamore rye. But at a certain point, you need to know what rye tastes like and what it smells like. Thank you so much. That's uh, that's high praise. We, uh, we definitely appreciate that. So it, it should be something considered for you know if you want to introduce someone to rye, if they're a casual person, casual consumer, you know maybe go to a different rye first. But if you really if there's someone who's really interested, and like you said, the geek kind of side to it, and they really want to know like what does a rye taste like, what does rosen rye smell like after a year, then they should try it because it's going to be the rye, and again enough oak to know it's a whiskey, but it's going to be it's going to smell and taste like the rye. Oh, thank um, you so much. Yeah, we always say to folks, it's sort of like a Rosetta Stone. Like if you can know, if, if there's a common flavor that you have that you can sort of contrast it against, then that mm -hmm. gives you the ability to, but, but being able to taste the younger rye gives you the ability to see how it's evolving essentially in the barrel. Exactly. And that makes, if they want to go back to the older stuff and the more barreled stuff, it makes it so much easier then to interpret what they're drinking at seven, eight, nine, 10 years or 15 to 18 years, because now you know what it tastes like and smells like here. And you can go along the spectrum. If you're starting at seven to 10 years where it's already got such barrel influence, even if it's very good barrel influence, you're already starting a disadvantage. Um, but anyway, so that was my soliloquy on that, but oh, no, thank you very much. That's fantastic. Um, so I, I the the i wish we had more time i wanted to talk about the apple brandy too because there's there's such um interesting information about the apple brandy i i'll um i want to point people to again your episode with alan on distillers talk and also your episode with um lilith's the lilith podcast oh yeah um, thank you. yeah and and this is a you know a hometown podcast but really diving into the uh, the reasons why you would have apple brandy in Pennsylvania and in Lancaster County, and so I definitely suggest people uh, you know go over there, listen to those episodes. I mean, Alan's always a hoot. He's I'm talking to him on Wednesday, and I don't know oh, what's going to come up. Well. <laughs> yeah, um, I he was my like fourth or fifth guest on the podcast, and um, this was like a year ago, and I was not prepared. 
Oh man. You know, um, now I'm, now I'm going in, I know what I'm dealing with. I know, you know, and he's, he's awesome. Uh, you can uh, buckle up this time, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, spe- speaking of experimental stuff, I just, he sent me a bottle and it, you know, I, I may or may not cut this out. We'll see, but, um, he sent me a bottle of, uh, his, uh, the whiskey, Witch. oh, right which, on. I have um, yet to try that, but I've heard, I've heard good things. All right, maybe we'll we'll talk offline about that how to get some to you, but it, it's yeah, I tried it yesterday, um, I for the second time I tried it last week when I got it, and then I tried it again yesterday, and it's just like nothing else. And that's where guys like Alan, um, Todd Leopold, you have um, uh, uh, now I'm blanking at Wilderness Trail, uh, Pat. Oh, uh, Pat Heist, yeah. He was an episode. He was just a couple episodes ago. I talked to him, and and you have these guys who. I always talk to people about, I compare it to music quite a bit, but when you speak to an Eddie Van Halen or a Jimi Hendrix or a, not only are they able to make the music and redefine the music, but they're also building their own guitars. They're changing the pickups. They're alternate tuning They're So I think you have people that figure out what the landscape is composed of and the number of variables that go into a product or or the decision tree that goes into it and are figuring out variables that some other people don't even know exist that they're tweaking that they're they're tone knobs that they're they're twisting that other people are you know, and then the first time you hear that Donna Summer Giorgio Moroder like sound that you're like, oh my God that's that's the level those guys are working on it just is uh yeah they're they're just so talented but to your i mean this all goes back to education too to your point though the i think the most important thing that that may be the most impressive thing and i completely agree with you on that that they can do all these things these micro adjustments that no one's even aware of um but i think the most important thing that they do with that is they're able to translate that to you know anyone who walks into their distillery or their uh, facility and they can tell, you know, they don't have to say guayacol. They can say black pepper. They don't have to, you know, use all, they can use all the esters terms. And I'm sure any number of them can list off the esters in their whiskeys, but they can say instead, you know, it's banana, green apple, you know, these different things that are much more, that are much clearer. And Um, I think also it it bespeaks to something that, that you know, a commonality with Dick as well, where there's people that know a lot and want you to know they know a lot. And mm-hmm. then there's people who know a lot and are confident and just sort of reveal it when it needs to be revealed. And kind of, you know what I mean though? There's some people who yeah. just want to use multiple polysyllabic words to show you that they had the word of the day calendar that where then mm-hmm. there's other people that just, so again, it's, it just with those guys, the amazing thing is, they know so damn much, but they don't, they don't use it like a cudgel. They don't use it like a club against people. They're, they freely share, which I think they're very wise to do so because most people, 99% of the things they're talking about, people nod and smile. Mm-hmm. No idea what they're actually talking about. So their knowledge is very safe in that way. And, and even when they're democratizing the knowledge, it's still just, it's another level. In, and I mean that in, in such an awesome and, and respectful way. Absolutely. And to go to one end of the spectrum, if you want to hear the probably the, the nerdiest podcast, and you'll know I mean this in a good way, that I've ever listened to was Dr. Pat 
on Distillers Talk because the two of them just went off on oh. on the intric- on, uh, intricacies, rather. Yeah, uh, but on the other hand, you know, I, I talked to Doctor Pat for maybe uh, like about two two and a half hours or so, and I mean, there's so much knowledge that that came out just in those two and a half hours. But probably the most the thing that keeps sticking in my mind the most was just asking him, you know, when you're talking about sour mash versus sweet mash, practically speaking, what is the difference of pH that you're talking about? Yeah. Because it's, it, there's such a huge deal made about it uh, by people on both sides of the argument that you think it's, you know, almost like one of them's going alkaline versus one of them's going sour and, you know, it's sour, like lemon juice sour or something. And the reality is it's, it's like, a point like a oh, one yeah. point range and granted within that one point range there's huge variability 100 but it's one point and not even like towards the lower or higher ends of the spectrum it's like in the you know five to sixes range they yeah. were talking about so still fairly neutral and to me that just blew my mind because like there's so much variation in this little thing and you think it's so like this it, it is a massive decision for a, for a distillery to make if they're going to sweet mash or sour mash. And but at the same time, yeast strains available in there. And then you throw, and, and that was another huge shift from when Dick left the industry to when he came back was just the digital kilning of malt changed things so much that mm-hmm. before, when he, when he left the industry, there were maybe six malts readily available. Now mm-hmm. there's hundreds of malts available that, Mm-hmm. it's just unbelievable the the variety of and i think sometimes too it's i look sometimes at his era as more like the beatles making sergeant peppers on the the four track where when you only have the four track and and you gotta you're bound but it almost like a haiku the the, the form gives you freedom where now with so many different variables i think it could almost be paralysis by analysis with with so much of it. Um, Absolutely, I had a chance to to compare notes with Alan offline during his podcast, talking about something, asking him if he tried it, and I asked him that quite a bit. And it was the only time he hadn't tried something. And I was saying, I said to him, I was like, Alan, oh my god, like when I'm doing weird things, I'm thinking, what would Alan be doing right now? And the fact that I did something you never did. Holy cow! Like I gotta write this one down. So anyway, but but really good guys. Absolutely. And um, in the uh, this is gonna sound so saccharine, and I can't believe I'm making this transition, but let's go with it. Um, in that spirit, let's. Uh, I want to uh, end with the kindred spirit, right? Oh yeah. I'm sorry, that was it no, was no. too it was too right there, and not and at I, all. I'm kicking yeah. myself for it, but the kindred spirit, right? So. Um, I do want to just say at the outset, I was kind of taken aback by it yeah. because, and I, I, it's really just a sense of, you know, you're clearly creating your own distillate. You've got your own distillate aging. Um, so the, I guess the obvious question is just, you know, why, Yeah. why bring it in? So for us, we have access to a lot of spirits that other people wouldn't otherwise have the chance to taste as as distillers and we have a lot of folks um, amongst distillers one of the first things you do when you meet other distillers is bring out esoteric things for them to taste 
So mm-hmm. as distillers, we have a lot of folks that will send us samples and, and ask if we would like to source any whiskey. And for us, we had come across this batch of 20 barrels that were MGP barrels that were uh, on average anywhere from six and a half to seven years old. And they had such a unique character to us that we decided that there was something that it was a unique opportunity for us to sort of address another aspect of American craft distilling that had sort of fallen by the wayside, which is the art of of sourcing and blending. And in Europe, where there was no prohibition, that never went away. And prior to prohibition in the United States, you had a lot of folks who would either source distillate from other folks or run distillate at their distillery because they didn't have their own distillery. And just the, we were just discussing earlier the decision tree of what goes into to sort of making a whiskey. And distilling the whiskey and putting it in the barrel, there's an unlimited number of, of decisions that go into that. But there's also a lot of decisions that come out of proofing and, and the way that you bottle and even what you're sourcing and even in the way that it's presented to the consumer as a very clearly sourced product and something that someone else did create, but something that that we do admire for its own unique flavor profile. And just the idea that we're able to turn some folks on to these killer barrel proof ryes that that we were able to source um, for us was just another aspect of of sort of the American distilling legacy that that we felt we'd be able to preserve. And also um, something that that in a lot of ways has gotten a bad rap in the industry. I know um, in in the beginning of the craft distilling movement, there was uh, maybe some folks who, who were less than forthcoming with with where some of their whiskey was coming from and and uh, in, and in some cases maybe even represented it as, as their own distillate. So for us to just sort of take the other approach and saying that no, the fact that that you didn't distill this isn't what's wrong with it. It's the way that you presented it to folks and the opportunity to to taste something truly unique that if positioned correctly is is not antithetical to what we're doing. It actually is just another another sort of aspect of of all of the uh, geeking out and, and just sort of enjoying uh, the, the flavors and craft whiskey. So for us, it, it seemed like the kind of thing that uh, would, would give us a chance to sort of tell another part of, of that story um, of, of American distilling history, while also really, really releasing some killer uh, value uh, barrel proof picks. Um, mm-hmm. So so it's nice. And, and we do get some folks that will come in and will tell us flat out, you guys seem really nice. The story's fantastic. We love the distillery. I don't drink anything under the under five years old. So it's now we can say to them, okay, well, question for you. Do you mind that this was not made by us, but is still killer with and so it seems like there's there's a lot of folks out there who are more focused on flavor than maybe um, maybe the actual production of the whiskey itself. Which is so interesting. You get some folks, I think, who even when you're listening to music, some folks that are really focused on lyrics, some some folks that are really focused on the music, some folks it's the synergy between the two. And I think for us, it uh, it enables us to 
really sort of geek out with folks that appreciate lyrics, but also music as well. So. Hey, look, I, I tried some of that. It was, and I gotta be honest in terms of, um, you know, what takes up the most room in my shelves, which are rapidly, I mean, they're already overflowing. I don't know why I said rapidly. They're, they're already overflowing. Um, my wife's going to kill me. Right. Uh, uh, you know, in terms of what takes up more of the rye space on than anything else, it, it is MGP rye under whatever brand it is. Yeah. That is what takes up the most. Um, it's, it's my go-to. I love it. Um, but there was certainly, you know, even knowing going in that it, that this was MGP sourced, uh, rye it was six and a half, seven years old, uh, uh the 95.5 too, right? It, um, it, it was still different. It was a noticeably different batch. Yeah. When it's amazing the variety that MGP Distillate can show. And now that batch we sent you was a leaky barrel batch, which economically you can't have all your barrels be leaky barrels doesn't work that way but sure. we find almost without exception that the wiki barrels just have something going on there i don't know if it's just the, the oxygen oxygenization that's happening in there if it's more oxidization that's happening uh different pressure that's happening i'm not smart enough to know but it, it just seems like there's something extra special that that happens in those I can't argue with you. I mean, it was, I loved it. I would gladly pick up a case of that if I could one afford oh, it. And two, if I could, you know, it was, Thank you so much. Yeah. but, but, and that's, it's a good point to, to kind of conclude things on, which is that putting aside your, your own product, you know, what you're producing on site, something like a 95.5 MGP rye, depending on who's, uh, sourcing it, who's picking the barrels, who's um, maybe doing something with the whiskey after they get it or not doing anything with it um, can make a tremendous difference in, in how it presents itself and how it tastes. And um, I was, I mean, I had a feeling it was a, a leaky barrel because it was 118 proof, I believe, or something like that, maybe a couple of points around there. It was 118 and, and change, I think. I don't think it was exact, no. but yeah. Cause it's, cause that usually, usually caps it around 116, unless you have a leaky barrel. Oh man. And we were, what again, the flavor in some of them are just so exciting. And, and for us, um, a, a lot of the time too, to, to use the musical analogy again, um, you, you have remixes of different songs where someone will take beats and, and sort of change the order of them or do. So for us, we get so excited to see other folks geek out about the flavors in them and it just uh, very different flavor conversations than our normal flagship rye but again just so excited to geek out with folks over uh over the intensity of those flavors in there so absolutely all right so with that um hang on with me a minute after we finish recording but as we're closing out eric where can people find you where can people find stolen wolf Sure. So we are available at stolenwolf.com for shipping throughout Pennsylvania. We're available in state stores um, throughout PA, and we're also working on distribution in other states. We do have some in uh, fourwhiskeylovers.com in New York. There's also uh, a distributor in California that carries us if 
you're in California and looking for a bottle, hit us up at uh, the website and we can send you a link to that. And uh, yeah, it's amazing. We are still incredibly small in our distribution, but mostly because we have such a hard time keeping up with, with the little distribution we have. So yeah, please, uh, please look for us in, in other markets soon. Absolutely. And uh, they'll include links to the website and, and all social media channels in the show notes for this episode. Uh, make sure to follow Whiskey My Wedding Ring on all socials as well. Uh, everything but Twitter where it's just Whiskey Ring because of those damn character limits. But as of today, that's owned by Elon Musk. So we'll see what that is like when this episode comes out. That. And actually, yeah. I'm totally remiss. I didn't mention our partners, uh, Pennsylvania Libations, who are in Reading Terminal Market in Philly and also the Strip and uh, Southside in Pittsburgh. So please uh, awesome. check them out. Awesome. Be sure to include those as well. So Eric, thanks so much for taking the time. It's been another episode of the Whiskering Podcast.